Hey church family, uh, readings today come from the book of Proverbs. The first is from chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and it reads, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, and knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's a second reading. It's also from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 3 through 11, and it reads, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteous of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies and hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too, the righteous is delivered from the trouble, and wicked walks into it instead. With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. All right, Revive. I think this is the first time we've ever had a scripture reading where we could hear birds chirping. That was a, uh, our brother has a really good microphone on his, uh, on his camera there. Um, we are in part three of our series. This is Independence weekend, Independence Day weekend, and uh, maybe some of you are away, although probably not, and even if you are away, um, we hope that you're joining us, and if you are, you know, you're new to our church, um, welcome, glad that you're here. Um, Let's get into it, part three of our series, Life-Giving Wisdom, um, in the book of Proverbs, and I've entitled this message, The Center of Wisdom. The center of wisdom, if you didn't pick that up from the reading, is righteousness. It's rather unintuitive for um, those of us in the 21st century here in America. But you know what will give you real wisdom and real wise life? It's actually, well, it's not a word that we like or even comfortable with. It's righteousness. And um, so let's get into it. Part one. Righteousness and character over talents and abilities. Righteousness and character over talents and abilities. The word that we use typically is not righteousness when we talk about this issue. We usually use the word character. That's fine. Um, And what we mean, of course, is good character, high character. And uh, our culture is very poor. And that includes us in the church, too. We're not very good at pursuing character. But according to the Bible, character, which the Bible calls righteousness, that's really at the center of a wise life. Part two, the problem of relativism and the tyranny of man. I want to talk about one really important problem that we're going to have in our post-Christian and secular culture, and that is that, that really draws us away from righteousness, and that is the problem of relativism and the tyranny of man. And I want to close um, by teaching you the gospel. I have a a story for you, but I want to talk about the liberating freedom of the wise life from the good shepherd. There's a freedom. There's a freedom in, in seeking righteousness, not through our works, not through our law keeping, not through our, our religion or all our efforts, but from the good shepherd, right? There's a wisdom from the shepherd, of course, you know who all that who that shepherd is. That is Jesus, and so let's get into it. Part one: um, righteousness and the character over and character over talents and abilities. Let's let's get to this. Is the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, and this is the way it starts. All right, um, the proverb of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. And here is the operative verse. In what? In righteousness, justice, and equity. 
We're three verses in, and you want to know the most important theme in the whole book of Proverbs. It's right here. Righteousness, justice, and equity. Now, I want to just stop for a moment here. Our culture uses, we really love these, we, we don't really like the first word so much, righteousness, but we do like the word justice and equity. And I want to just, I, w- I want to stop and pause here for a moment, and I want to talk about this. Our culture loves those two words, equity and justice, but they're often incredibly, um, they're very much overladen with a lot of politics. And there's, there's this kind of automatic assumption of what those words mean. Justice means a certain thing, and certain people believe in justice, and it has to come through politics. Certain people believe in equity, and generally, it means some kind of political action. And one of the things I want to teach you is that is not what the Bible is saying. Right? This book is generally very much a non-political book. And it is before we get to politics, we're talking much about fundamental character of the human heart. And actually, in the, according to the Bible, it's like in our, in, our, in our life today, we almost kind of bracket off the question of character. And the justice and equities over here is like a, is some kind of, of it's like a political issue and that you have to be on the correct side of these political issues. That is not how the Bible sees it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The way the Bible sees these three words is they're practically almost synonymous. Indeed, justice and equity, they don't mean exactly the same thing as righteousness, but in the Bible's vision, righteousness is really the emphasis. And you'll see this when we get to the chapter 11, and maybe you caught it. When we get to chapter 11, you'll see that the word justice and equity doesn't come up nearly as much as actually righteousness. Righteousness is the word. And in our culture, we separate these two things out. Character, having a good character, which we call, you know, which we don't use the word righteousness, but we call it character. And then somehow, like, there's this thing out there, justice and equity, which are distinct, like, somehow in two different boxes, but not so according to the Bible. That actually, if you want to have a just society, and you want to treat people with equity, equity is not primarily about something that happens in the court, or that happens according to power structures, it is, it's between the way you and I treat other people. And, not, and then, of course, if you and I as individuals treat other people with equity, that is, will you treat a rich person and a poor person with equity? Will you treat a, a poor person with the same respect and honor and dignity as you would a rich person? Or a person who has no power in society, but you give them the same kind of honor and fairness and dignity and respect as you would with somebody with much power in society. So these are the kind of questions. And if you do this in your everyday life, in, in the Bible, if you pra- those who practice, who can practice with less in when, when the stakes are lower will also be able to see them when the, God will give you greater responsibility when the stakes are higher. That's how the Bible sees it. So if you cannot practice equity in your day-to-day life, do you think suddenly you'll be able to practice equity if you are the leader of an organization or in government or if you are you know, operating inside the criminal justice and you are a lawyer or a judge or a police officer? Think about these types of issues. The fundamental question is first and foremost, righteousness. If you do not have righteousness, we won't have justice or equity. It flows fundamentally out of the heart. And so it's less about some kind of like, you know, abstract power structure from the outside. It always starts from fundamentally in the mind and the heart. And so wisdom is not just some idea that's in your head. It has to come into the fullness of your being and come out of you. You, The full authentic way from your intentions, your attitudes, and then your actions. This is righteousness. And then if it's done at a very, very high level, where it's with purity, then the Bible calls this holiness. This is how the Bible looks at it. Now let me just emphasize a couple of things. Verse uh, 4. To give prudence to the simple. So you don't consider yourself a very smart or sophisticated person. You know what? You don't have to go to have some great degree. You don't even have to be able to read. <laughs> Let alone having graduated from high school or college or some graduate program. To the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. So this starts young. Verse 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. 
Last week, Pastor Young gave a very fine message on guidance. If you don't have a fundamental understanding of righteousness, you see multiple pathways before you, and you should be able to immediately go, wait a second, these aren't righteous pathways. You can just eliminate them. But right away, if you have a deeper understanding of what's God's will through righteousness and character, the paths already start to become clear. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, it does seem a little mysterious at times. But actually, the Bible doesn't try to make it mysterious. It's actually quite straightforward. And verse 7, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D is his name, Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So this word fear, typically, in, in, you know, it's, it's been translated as fear, but it doesn't mean to be afraid of, though there's some aspect of that. Because, But the real, the real I think a better, maybe a more modern translation, is to be in awe of the Lord. So you can't just have this idea, it's really good, important to have righteousness in my head. You, know, you, get, you take this in your mind. Right now we are seeking the transformation of your mind, but really you must begin, well, Susang, the pastor said this thing. No, there's a person that we are to be in awe of. And that's really where it begins. So it goes into your mind, the fullness of your heart, and righteousness, justice, and equity are the fullness of your whole being. Now, let's go to chapter 11. I want to just give you, um, I just chose this passage, uh, not because I want to explicate all of it, but I want you to see and feel its emphasis. So I'm just giving you a little tip on how to read the Bible. If something gets repeated multiple times, you should pay attention. I mean, I, I don't, you know, you probably, oh, he's, Susang, he's our pastor, he knows a lot about the Bible, and I do. But, you know, I don't actually go around thinking, I know so much about the Bible and that's how I know how to follow God. You know what I do? I think more like a kid. <laughs> and what my father repeats, I pay attention to. And as a parent, <laughs> this is what I usually do to my kids. It kind of drives them a little crazy. But I say the same points again and again and again and again. Why? Because how my father in heaven trains me. <laughs> and that's how he trains all of us. So just follow the repetition, and listen, right? So chapter 11, verse 3, listen. The integrity of the upright guides them. So you know what integrity is? It's part of righteousness. It's basically a synonym for righteousness, good character. Of the upright, of the righteous, those who have high character, guides them. But the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. So the opposite of those who are, are righteous are crooked. <laughs> you know people that are like that? Or maybe you are like that? The people think that there's always kind of, kind of surprise or you talk to somebody and they say this one thing and there's not a consistency to their character or to their intentions or the way they operate. Well, verse 3 describes them or it could describe you. And if so, it says... It's pretty bad. In fact, it says the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. It isn't something on the outside. The world will come out and get you, and then thus it's God's fault, and therefore he's a bad God. No, actually, one of the things that wrecked your own life was the crookedness inside of you. And of course, we as Christians, we know that everyone of the sinners, there's a certain amount of crookedness. And so righteousness is not just something you just have. We all know we have this crookedness. And the real question is not whether we are all sinners with this fundamental crookedness is whether there's a fight. Is there a fight in you to seek integrity and uprightness, which will guide us? So let's go to verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now I want to make this little point here. In America today, this is the way we typically tend to raise our children, and this is certainly... The, 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 uh, the absolute, it's, I mean, I don't know if it's straight up said out loud, but it's pretty much the reigning message of our secular education, which is what's really important is your talent. <laughs> your talent, your achievements, whatever you're good at, how smart you are, how fast you are, <laughs> how, uh, how many words you know, how level of math you can get to faster and faster. So, 
I want to give a little tip to parents today, and, um, and because it's really, I know you're like, okay, if the pastor, of course, is going to say this thing, but please try not to hear a pastor say this, hear God say this, which is, if you're a good parent, you should emphasize character to your children, and character to your children is going to come from God, and the fundamental place where they're going to learn that character and emphasis from God is church. <laughs> so it's really not that complicated. Moms and dads, you know what's more important than your kids' violin lessons or your soccer practice and all these other things you want to do in order to, you know, to, 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 um, in order to bring out all their talent? What's more important is church. It's really not that complicated. And one of the reasons why they need to come to church is so that they would know Christ and, of course, have salvation, but then that they would also gain and seek and have the conviction to seek righteousness and character all of their life. If you want their life to have power, and not just, we, we think this, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Why do we do this? Because if we have all these talents, then we'll get into the best schools, and those talents will help us to make more money, and then we'll have a good life. But that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is righteousness. Righteousness is what will profit. So verse five, the righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight. Righteousness, blameless, straight. But the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Verse six, so the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. So there's treacherousness. People always got schemes. You know any people at your work or at school or hopefully not even in your own family? They always got something up their sleeve. There's always some trick. That's treacherous. And people who say they're cool to you and they're your friend on social media, but then they burn you later on, I would say that's treacherous. And they have these, this, this, but they fall and they're taken captive by their lust. Now, the word here, lust, doesn't only simply mean sexual lust. Of course, it certainly includes sexual lust, but it means all kind of out-of-control desires. All kinds of things that like, make us, you know, the desires, to, I, I have to be cool with these people, this person is like now uncool, and now I'm going to essentially be treacherous to them, whether it's online and just ghost you, or, or maybe even worse, to your face. I don't know if that's worse, actually. And so... Think about that. Think of who it is that you're around and start to use God's wisdom to make some assessment. Who has wisdom? And one of the simplest ways to do it is just ask yourself this question, who has character? Who pursues character? Who takes character and their integrity very, very seriously in your life? If they don't take it very, very seriously in your life, you should have your guard up on them. I'm not saying you shouldn't be kind to them or shouldn't love them because certainly as Christians, we ought to be this way to all our neighbors, but you gotta be careful. And some people, well, sometimes they don't even know it and they wouldn't call themselves treacherous because they think they have good intentions, but people who don't take integrity very, very seriously, well, they're filled with what the Bible calls lust and are treacherous. Let's move on. Um, Verse 7, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. And the expectation of wealth perishes too. In other words, they only think about temporal goods. Only the things that, are, that we're trying to get on this earth. But the Bible says, no, think of eternal promises. Verse 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. Now, this isn't a 100% rule. It happens absolutely every single time. But we're talking in general. Verse 9, with his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. So there's yet another synonym for those people who don't really know righteousness, which is godless. And this, uh, this sounds rather rude and rather mean. There are a lot of people, of course, the vast majority of our culture are, are godless. Not all of them are wicked in the sense, but a lot of them are truly lost, and they can't tell the difference between what is genuine integrity and righteousness. 
and a lot of them have very little fight inside of them. And they, take, they don't have a suspiciousness of the cr- crookedness and understand that life, as Martin Luther put it, is repentance. And the last, last two verses. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. And so righteousness is not only just something that's going to be good for your life, it's going to be good for our neighbors. It's going to be good for the whole city. It's going to be good for the culture. And um, I don't think, it's, it's very hard to let you know that um, a lot of the deep problems in our culture and in our city, it really comes back to this. There are, very, there are more and more people who do not take righteousness very, very seriously, and they don't understand that righteousness fundamentally, first and foremost, comes from God, which is a point I'm going to get to in part two. But if we're going to bless our neighbors, even if our neighbors don't like the way we do it, brothers and sisters, our neighbors, you know, they don't like the way that we do it. We, the church, God's people, God's word who live inside the gospel, we know our city regularly either just ignores, we're either irrelevant to them, or they straight up disdain. (laughs) They hate the way we do it. But nonetheless, we want to bless them. I hope you want to bless them. Our church stands for the blessing of the way. We were wicked and crooked, and yet Jesus came for us to bless us, was bless our neighbors, not just with our words or with our religion, but with our character and with our righteousness, which spreads God's kind of justice and equity. Let's go to part two. I want to talk about one huge problem in what I want to call post-Christian society. And there's a question. So I say this thing about righteousness and character, and if you're not a person who believes in Jesus, you may merely ask yourself this question, or you're just a part of our culture, which is, what is righteous? <laughs> what is righteous? What character are you talking about? And that is, you might say someplace, you have your rules and standards, and others have different ones, so whose ones are you we talking about here? And who are you to judge and impose your standards for righteousness over another people's? And you know what? That's a really important question. And that is a very, very common question in our time. And I want to address that because that's, we're talking about righteousness. You have to know where the righteousness comes from and where you have to go. And I want to give you a quick little history lesson. And I'm not talking about going way far back. We're just talking about 20 or 30 years ago. So I'm in my late 40s, and when I was young, and that is, I'm talking about when I was a boy and I was a teenager, our culture, you know, the philosophers say that America lived in a modern or a modernist culture. And today we believe in, people say that we live in a postmodern culture. And I have lived in both versions. And let me tell you, there is most definitely a very serious difference. If you're under the age of 30, you may not feel this difference. But at my age, I I absolutely can feel the difference. And it's not a little bit different. And now let me get at what is the fundamental difference when people talk about modern versus postmodern. There's multiple ways of talking about this, but I want to talk about this with respect to this question of character and righteousness. So in the modern age, the modern age, this is the way the modernist American or the modernist West approached questions of truth. So, on the question of public truth. You know how it was decided? It was decided through science, facts, and evidence. That's how it's decided. Not somebody's feelings, not somebody's narratives. Science, facts, and evidence was the common coin of the, of, of the public life. So it didn't matter whether you were an atheist or whether you were a Christian or whether you're heterosexual or you're a gay or whatever, whether you're black or white, if you want to go into the public sphere and make a case for something that's important, this is right, this is wrong, this is better, this is worse, you have to argue with facts and evidence and science. But what about the question of right and wrong? (laughs) And the question of right and wrong and the question of like the more metaphysical questions, is there a God, is there heaven, 
In other words, what we might call religion or we might call values, what, what there basically was, was they said, you can go to your own church and you believe in different, you, know, you can believe in whatever religion that is, that's a kind of a private matter, but there is a public morality. <laughs> and the public morality in the modernist period was basically, let's call it Western values. But you know what Western values basically were? Christian values. <laughs> Christian biblical values. And they informed all, there was a certain understanding of what it meant to be human. So regardless of whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you had to be treated a certain way. This is why the West invented something called human rights. Human rights means doesn't matter if you're poor or rich. Doesn't matter if you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic or Native American or you got you are in control. You're not in control. There are human rights. You know where this comes from? It comes from the Bible. Over time, people have called this Western values, but really, they're biblical values. And then over time, our society started figuring out how to operate this in in a justice system, so that. You know, if there is going to be somebody on trial, maybe this person is poor or maybe this person is rich. You know what there has to be? There has to be an oppositional system so that somebody has to advocate for this person on trial. So it doesn't matter if this person is rich or poor. Someone's supposed to advocate for this. Why? Because here we go again. Evidence. <laughs> Testimonies. Not whether this person is rich or poor or black or white, but evidence or this was a just way and you know where this comes from the bible this wisdom comes from the bible and it was built up over time now why am i saying this to you we get to postmodernity. you know what happens in postmodernity? in postmodernity, no longer are facts and evidence the coin of the time no longer it is now only different cultures so in in the modern period, people believed there's such a thing as a universal truth when it came to moral values and applied to everybody, regardless of whether they're Christian or not. That's the modern viewpoint. But you get to postmodern, and they're like, what is truth? See, that's this question, what is righteous? It's a postmodern question. And all of you who are growing up in this period, you think this is such a powerful question. It's a very powerful question, but it's an incredibly old question. It's not like we just invented this recently. Like, we just found out that different people have different values. Yes, we do. But guess what? So if different people have different values, who has the right one? And since, no, we don't know who has the right one, we can say nobody actually has the right truth. Nobody actually has the right values. And so there is no one kind of righteousness. You know what we have? We have white man's righteousness, and then we have black man's righteousness, and we have an Asian kind of righteousness, and we have a Buddhist kind of righteousness, and they're all different. <laughs> and nobody has the one kind of righteousness. But let me tell you something. This is absolutely in disagreement with the Bible. The Bible would say, no way. <laughs> there is one kind of righteous way, and there is one kind of standard, and it is a transcendent standard. It transcends every culture. And it will honestly judge every culture. And when you can go into different cultures, you can actually begin to tell when they're doing something genuinely righteous versus when there's something crooked in their culture. When an individual, regardless of what culture, or whether they're rich or poor, you can have a sense of whether they are crooked or whether they're righteous. Why? Because it's from God. <laughs> and you know what? This is really great too. You can judge our own, our own culture. You can use the Bible itself to say, hey, powerful person, why you're so unjust and, and, and oppressive and such a liar. You know where this comes from? From the Bible. Now, some of you are thinking, well, really, everybody just kind of knows. No, they don't. No, they don't. The real evidence is this. You know that if you take, so this is the second point I want to make. If we live in a postmodern culture, there is no one standard of righteousness. What we have is relativism. Relativism and secularism are basically one and the same. If you have secularism, there's no standard to judge every culture and every person. But if you have it under God, there is a standard that all nations and all people, rich or poor, 
there's one standard of righteousness. And so if you have secularism, you have relativism. But if you have the Bible, you have a universal standard. And it's incredibly powerful. Now I want to make a couple points here. Um, one, I don't know if you know this, but around the world, it's not like the whole world likes Western values, or which is another way of saying Christian values. They're very, very oppressive people, and that's this word is so easily used around here. Oppressive. This is a this person's oppression. And and every time I hear this is oppression in American culture, I I, I honestly it just I just want to squirm inside. Because let me tell you what oppression looks like. It looks like this. Right now, the Chinese government, there's in the northwest corner of China is an area called Xinjiang. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Xinjiang. And you know there's a minority of group of people there, they're Muslims. There's an ethnicity, and again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, they're called the Uyghurs. You know how the Chinese treat the Uyghurs? Here's how the Chinese treat the Uyghurs. They um, do forced, they do forced abortions simply because they don't like Muslims. And they think their society shouldn't have Muslims. So they have forced abortions. They round these people up, throw them into what are essentially concentration camps, gulags. And they just keep them there over generations. For what reason? For no reason. Except they're Uyghurs. And because they're Muslims. So is this okay? Of course it's not okay. But if you're a postmodern, secular, relativistic person, let me tell you, on what basis can you say, hey, those Chinese people are bad, they're oppressive. Let me tell you, aren't you just using a Western white man's, you know, just a standard, and you're going to use culture and imperialism on these Chinese people? And you know what? If you say that to them, you know what they'll say? That's exactly what they'll say. Who the heck are you to say this to us? That's just your standards. Who are you to impose your values upon us? But what you could do from the Bible is you could actually, you can weigh how they operate. And from the Bible, we know this is absolutely wicked. And we in our country, we should oppose the Chinese attitude and actions toward the Uyghurs and then all kinds of other similar ones. This is just the latest. Of course, the world is filled with these kinds of things. Now, let me make a second related point. We're living in a time right now where Christian values, biblical values, or Western values, are honestly quite hated. And they're hated in lots of different ways. So um, lots of people, they just hate white people, for instance. White people are like the source of all things. You know, white Americans are sinners. So did they fail and sin? Yes. And American culture was built on these biblical values, and you know the number one failure of these biblical values is really honestly race. It's probably the most ghastly failure in our history. But that does not mean that all white Americans are these oppressive, wicked people. That is crazy talk. That is a total slanderous lie. <laughs> There's a lot of good things that come from them. And guess what? The best things that come from them come from the Bible. <laughs> Where they believe in the Bible. And here's the part I want to tell you. Instead of just listening to narratives, because that's what postmodernity loves. Postmodernity loves, our culture has a narrative. Follow our narrative, and if you don't follow our narrative, you're bad. But actually, follow the evidence. And here's an important piece of evidence today. Do you know that many, many non-white people absolutely love Western, Western values? <laughs> A lot of non-Christian people, they love Western values. You know that in China, they want to send their kids to Christian schools. It's crazy. And there are people who risk their life. They really risk their life and spend crazy lots of money and even get abused to illegally try to cross into Western nations, North America, America, Canada, the Western European countries that still have some sliver, even though they're all these countries, are really, really running away from these values. It's the crazy irony. The crazy irony is in, in, in these countries, they hate the Western values, and the elitist, elite folks hate the Christian, the Christian morality that really built these societies, and yet all these other people around the world want to get in here. 
What does that say? It's, there's no whole lot of people that's trying to get into Saudi Arabia or Somalia or Papua New Guinea, but they want this kind of city. Because as the Bible says, this kind of righteousness builds the city. And even though our neighbors hate it, brothers and sisters, let's believe in the Bible. Let's trust in God's wisdom. Okay, I want to close. Uh, I didn't really fully say everything I wanted to say. Okay, one other point I just want to say is there's a tremendous pressure and peer pressure all around. Please don't listen just to the word of man, not just culture. And some of you are feeling this from social media and so forth. This is the way to be a good person. Based on what are they saying that? And I'm just talking all kinds of different issues. And you know, in our church, we regularly teach you, for instance, let's just take a really obvious one. Our culture says that if you disagree with their understanding of sexuality, you're a bad person. But that's just culture. And that is peer pressure, a very profound kind of peer pressure. And it's coming from the law. And it will eventually more and more start coming from the law. And we will have to pay the price. But we're going to follow a different vision of righteousness in our sexuality. That's God's. That's going to bless our neighbors. And your life too. And let me tell you one more thing. If you really want to help the poor, help spread a different vision of sexuality and marriage and family. It's the number one way you can help the poor. You really want to help the poor? It's not going to come from the government. <laughs> want to help them come from the poor? Help them find a righteous way of living. Including, and even if they don't even like us, or even believe in Jesus, we could serve them and bless them and influence them. Now let me go to the, let me close. The liberating freedom of the wise life from the good shepherd. I want to tell you a story and then I'm going to give you the gospel and we'll close. I'm going to give you an example. And uh, this week, I just came back from a little vacation and I kind of stumbled on this book and some of my readings and I ordered it. And um, it's, it's a terrific book. And um, it's rather entertaining and really rich. But um, it's called Soul Man, S-E-O-U-L, Soul as in the capital of Korea, Soul. Soul Man. And it's a memoir. It's a memoir written by an American, a white American named Frank Ahrens, A-H-R-E-N-S. And I got it because I'm interested in how does a, you know, a white Western person, I mean, what does he think about Korean culture in Seoul? <laughs> I just thought that should be interesting. And so I got it. And it turns out he's a Christian. I did not, had no idea he was a Christian. Turns out he's a Christian. And so what I'm going to do is I want to just, just give you a little quick sense of, um, I'm going to give you a quick little uh, reading of how he became, um, of his testimony. Here's how he puts it. So he, this guy gets married in his mid-40s. I think he's like 46. Okay? And he was kind of a, well, this dumb guy who would just have, you know, that's what he would say, have these girlfriends and have no real aim. And then after a while, usually girlfriends get really tired of him and then like, get rid of him, and so then he was still single into his 40s, and he finally met a woman who basically, they started dating, and he really loved her, and she wasn't messing around. She was saying, I want to get married and have kids. <laughs> but then, so he married, her name is Rebecca. She sounds incredible, actually. She's actually, she sounds, she is from New Zealand. Her father is a New Zealand Presbyterian pastor. She's a pastor's kid, so she was a Christian. So here's how we put it. So, Aside from being attracted to each other, enjoying spending time together, and being in love, we shared the most fundamental of connections, our faith. We were both Christians and knew this meant we would be in accord or at least start from the same point on the most crucial of topics that either make or break marriages, from worldview to money to raising children. Every Christian has a testimony, and mine is this. I received Christ my freshman year of college, read the Bible assiduously, right? attended church and tried to live right. But within a couple years, my innate selfishness, lack of discipline, and human desire overtook my faith and I fell away from it for more than two decades. 
I dated a number of women. I cared deeply for many, but treated others poorly. And for that, I will always be sorry. I was mired in narcissism, pursuing my own empty compulsions and separated from God. So here he is. He's a Christian. But he wasn't living according to righteousness. He was living according to crookedness. It was Rebecca who brought me back to church and to God. It is the most important of the many ways she has saved me. I am still narcissistic and selfish. The difference now is that I care that I am. I seek forgiveness for these and my many and my manifold other sins, and I pray for the strength to change. Faith in a fallen world is a constant struggle. He's got to fight. Sustained only by the grace of God. So, he's a Christian. He, he's in his mid-40s. Little background. His wife, you know, I guess, I guess she's a second-generation New, you know, like New Zealand immigrant. She's in, he meets her in America. Well, for most of his career, he works for the Washington Post. He is a journalist. The, but the, I don't know if you know this, but major newspapers are in big trouble. Started laying people off. He marries this wonderful woman, and she's one of these people that was born to go see the world. And she wanted to go live somewhere else. And she got a job with the U.S. Foreign Service. And then they got assigned to Seoul. So he had to go to Seoul. So he basically gets married. He's a newlywed. And then they have to move in, at the, you know, in his late 40s. For the first time, he has to go live in a foreign country. And in order to live in a foreign country, he got a job. You know where he got this job? He got this job for Hyundai Motor Company. Working on their PR side. So he's, this car, if you like cars, this is a great read, okay? And so that's where he got the job. So he goes there, and you know what he found out? He found out that in Korean culture, that work and work life and personal life, there isn't this line in American culture. Work life, big old line, personal life. No, in Korean culture, they like to put these things together. And a very important way that they put these things together is that after work, you have to go to what they call heshik. Heshik literally means company meal. And so you're, you and your, uh, you and your, you know, um, you and your coworkers are going to, and your boss too, are going to go out for a meal, and you know, it's like they're going to create camaraderie. And that meal is, I guess, technically. Technically, it is optional, but realistically, it is not optional. And here's the other thing that happens with this meal. The way they draw forth camaraderie is to drink a lot. <laughs> toast after toast after toast, second, third, fourth, fifth rounds. It's a lot of drinking. Essentially, and he tells it to you that basically, Koreans are the biggest drunks in the whole world. And it's, Number two, apparently, is very far behind. They're like, apparently, according to him, it's the Russians. But they're far behind. And so then he was in a struggle. I want to seek after my God's way. But here I am. There's a pressure. There's a pressure from the people around me and the righteousness that they seek, which is, you should drink. If you don't drink, then you're not with us and then they will look poorly upon you because you refuse to engage in deeper relationships in the way that they do that. So, here's how he put it. Okay? So I put it. So they asked him, why don't you do it? Why won't you drink more? And he goes, for health? And he could have said for health, but that's not what he said. He said, well, I have a more relevant answer although it proved less understandable. Well, health for sure, but mostly because the Bible teaches me not to. The Bible says you can drink, but it says do not get drunk. And of course, every night these guys are getting drunk and hammered. This answer provoked a variety of responses from sympathy to puzzlement to even accusation. For those who were offended, not only was I disrupting the group harmony by not getting drunk, but I was also acting holier than thou and worse, telling them that they also went to church, that they were poor Christians. Which, because 25% of Koreans call themselves Christians. 
if my Hyundai co-workers were curious about the biblical instruction on drunkenness, I was happy to share it. And he would just list the Bible verses. He knew them. Right? Otherwise, I tried to diffuse the situation. There would have been no problem if I objected to eating dog or to one of the other peripheral Korean activities. But to object to the excesses of the Korean drinking culture was basically to spit in my host country's face. I was keenly aware of this and wanted desperately to avoid it. So here you are. You want to follow God. But you also want to show honor and love to your neighbor. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're all up against. We're up against this on sexuality. We're up against this on race issues and justice issues. God and religion. You name it. Parenting. This is a microcosm of what we're up against. Here's what he said. He asked a bunch of different people. He says, I eventually found a solution for Heshik. A waitress streamed in and out with food and hot coals amid the laughing and teasing and arms thrown around colleagues' shoulders. I poured soju for my boss. That's the Korean national drink, right? And poured those for those around me and let others pour for me and partook in the endless toasts which each salary man was required to make. For each toast, each time everyone did a bottoms up of soju, I took one sip from the shot glass. By the end of the night, my colleagues may have had 10 or 12 shots, but I had only one or two. My strategy became known and understood mostly because my boss said it was okay. And in Korean culture, if the boss says it's okay, you know what? It's okay. Because it's a hierarchical culture. I was therefore, I was, I was participating and I was honoring their process, but still seeking to follow the Lord. See? I want to close. I want to close with the Bible passage. And I really want you to hear this. <laughs> Seek righteousness. This is how our shepherd will lead us. This is from John chapter 10. And I want to read this passage to you. I hope you really hear this. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The world is filled with people who will say, this is right, this is right, but, and I'll take care of you. But Jesus says, actually, they're prone to being thieves and robbers. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In other words, you will find real food and a true life, a wise life, the kind we're looking for. The thief only comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the world snatches them and scatters them. If you do not have a transcendent wisdom, and you do not have a shepherd to lead you to real righteousness and to a real pasture. You only have the hired hands of the world. And this is where it lands. Verse 13. He, the hired hands, flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In other words, he won't, they won't lay down their life for you. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So brothers and sisters, do you want to follow after a real righteousness? Hear the voice of your shepherd. And remember, he's the only one that has laid down his life for you. He's the only one who has laid down his life for you. The world is pressuring you and, and saying, if you do this, and we'll give you this promise. We'll accept you. If you do this, then we'll honor you. Will they be your shepherds? Will they take care of you? 
Will they atone for your sins? Will they forgive you? And when you seek a righteous way and then you fall down and you fail and you don't do it according to their standard, will they have mercy and grace upon you and love and forgiveness for you and be with you no matter what? But this shepherd, we do fail his standards. That's exactly why we came. And we are crooked and we are unrighteousness, unrighteous. And we fail even now, just like Frank Owens for 20 years, this guy didn't follow Jesus. Until he got, until the Lord sent him a wonderful wife. Lord, please follow the Lord who is a good shepherd. He has forgiven you. He will lead you to an abundant life. He will never leave you. His way, his righteousness by grace, not by our works, but by our obedience of his wisdom that will lead you to the great and free, wise life. Let's pray. Lord, we are foolish sheep. And sometimes we hear your voice and sometimes we don't want it. Sometimes we often, as we heard last week, we turn to our own understanding and listen to our own voice, not the voice of the shepherd. We're very eager to hear the voice of the world, even though you warn us that they're more like hired hands and will abandon us. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, you laid down your life through the cross and you will never leave us. Leave us. You will lead us to a great pasture. You are the door. You are the way. You're not just the way to righteousness. You are our righteousness. Let us live in great wisdom and conviction. And all who are listening here today, if they do not know you, may they hear the voice of the good shepherd. And all of us foolish sheep, we know you. And if there are any of us who are like Frank Ahrens, who we are your sheep but not listening to you, help us to repent and listen to you and run to you. Obey you from the heart, not because out of fear and because we have to and because we have to earn our righteousness, but because you've already given it to us by grace and will forgive us and walk with us and help us grow in wisdom and righteousness and justice and equity, even though we are so foolish and we fall down so much. We thank you for being this kind of God, being this kind of shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.